Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Both groups feel like we are 100% in the right and you're 100% in the wrong. And everything we do, we only do because you deserve it and because we're trying to protect ourselves. But both groups feel the same way. And it makes it impossible to escape the conflict because no one's taking responsibility. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. I am so excited for this week's podcast episode to share with you. I wanted to do a, a personalized intro because I've really been feeling motivated and that my edge is to have conversations that are hard, the ones that we don't want to have, to explore what has created binary thinking, what has created where we have this inability to speak about so many subjects that have become so hypersensitive that we've actually just ceased talking about them because that seems to be easier to avoid cancellation, to avoid the possibility of being criticized, to avoid conflict. But whenever we do that, we don't actually serve the world. We don't serve our communities. We don't serve our society. So this conversation that you're about to hear was just so important for me to have. It was I was just blown away by the research that she shares in just all the different subjects that we touch on. And I want you to know that I'm always mindful and attempt to construct things in the best possible way that are the least triggering as possible, but I'm always learning. And I'm going to continue to evolve out loud and go to the edges of the conversations that I believe personally are important. And I recognize the bias in that alone. But this is my podcast and that bias exists. And that's why it's called the Mark Groves podcast, not something else. So with all that said, I acknowledge it and I did my best to express what biases I do have and 
while I explore my own consciousness and my own biases and my own opinions, and how do I build a bridge within my own self and bring light to the things that I don't even see about me and the way I see the world. So this conversation with Corey Clark is an attempt to do that a little more. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Corey Clark. Corey Clark is a social psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little more about the work you do just to inform our conversation and and just give people a heads up on why you get to talk about this stuff? I'm a visiting scholar in the psychology department at UPenn um, and the director of the Adversarial Collaboration Project, which is a research initiative that aims to get disagreeing scholars to work together to resolve their empirical it's disagreements. It's quite an initiative, yes. <laughs> the typical model is they just kind of fight back and forth for their entire careers and die hating each other. And we're trying to instead get people to cooperate and figure out what's going on. Why are they disagreeing? But my background is I have a PhD in social psychology from University of California, Irvine, and I study moral psychology and political psychology and political bias and you know, why we hate our outgroup members and why we harshly morally judge other people and various kinds of self-serving biases we have. So hopefully my expertise will be relevant. (laughs) Uh, I mean, to today's circumstances, which seem to be magnified (laughs) versions of what we came from, maybe social media has drastically magnified difference and similarity. Like both have been turned up a notch. Like we get to believe we're more right because we're more validated by information that just echoes around us. And we also believe people are more wrong because that's also magnified. Well, with social media, it does a couple of things. One is it helps people find like-minded other people very easily. So it's easy for us to kind of narrow our social groups to these small groups of people who agree with everything we think. So we form these really tight in-groups. And then it lowers the costs of conflict. So when you're having disagreements on social media, you're often talking to strangers that you'll never meet in the real world. So you're willing to say really terrible things to them that you would never say to someone who like lives in your community. But it's 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 this really bizarre artificial reality where like, because it's not artificial, really, like these are real people that you're talking to. Um, it's the just time, the typical yeah. social, yeah, most of the time. But the typical social norms just don't exist because people don't have to pay the consequences of their bad behavior in those kinds of contexts. Yeah, it's interesting to consider that if I was to perform or sorry, to behave in a way that in a tribe or a community that that I lived in, that the cost might be belonging, that the cost might be getting punched in the face. You know, the cost might be these things. And you're right, you know, I think they're kind of aptly named keyboard warriors, they get to hide behind not even their own faces, you know, and Twitter, it feels like the cesspool. Of, of <laughs> it's <this>. the worst. <laughs> it's it the, is worst. the worst. Yeah, all of these people don't even use the real names or their real pictures. And then they join these other groups of people who don't use their names and pictures and <laughs> right. they build each other up. And when someone calls someone else an idiot, people are like, yeah, <laughs> it's like in the real world, we're not cheering people on who call people names. We're like, oh, maybe you need to calm down. But on Twitter, you get applause for it. So it really encourages some of the worst human behaviors and just makes that kind of stuff feel normal in a way that it's really not normal in the real world. Well, I used to work as a pharmaceutical rep and part of my work was working with key opinion leaders, you know, researchers like you're speaking about, who 
when like a new product came out or a new piece of research came out, that author would usually tour and do a talk about this new thing. And then let's say it was like treating blood pressure. The person who was one of the founding authors of an ACE inhibitor trial would all of a sudden now this new drugs on the block and it's kind of dethroning the ACE inhibitor. They would sort of double down upon their research and why their study was better. And even though you know, that might be a poor example for what I'm about to say. But even though that product might be being dethroned as the go-to first-line product, there was just so much identity associated with the research that it was hard to sort of, especially if their fame or their income is doubled and influenced by that. I just saw such a reluctance to welcome in sort of the new generation of product, maybe the new generation of academic. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, you want to think that people, for example, people working in pharmaceuticals, you want to think that their goal is to improve, you know, well-being, human well-being and health. Similarly, in science, you want to think that what scientists are trying to do is discover the truth and share that good information with other people. But it's not really set up that way because it's a competitive market with pharmaceuticals. But similarly, in science, scholars are competing with other scholars to publish the best papers, to win awards, to get the great job, to get tenure at those great jobs, to have high status in their community. Scientists are really primarily motivated by attaining status. And so once they identify like a thing, a theory, a finding that they get attention for, that they start getting citations and awards and praise, that becomes their thing. It becomes part of their identity, who they are, what makes them special or smart and important. And so when another scholar says, hey, I think you might be wrong about that, it's not like, you know, <laughs> they like want to get together and solve the mystery and be like, that's so interesting. Like, you're smart. I'm smart. We both are experts on this. Why do we disagree? Let's figure this out. How intriguing. That's what you would want. What you get is they start fighting and name calling and questioning each other's motives and they just, you know, try to design research to show how stupid the other person is. And it's really rare to see them actually converge in their views over time. Um, instead, they just get even more confident and rigid and stuck in their own paths. We're trying to change that. <laughs> we'll see how successful we are. It's going all right so far, but it's still early. <laughs> Well, I would imagine it would be hard to even accept that one's own bias is making them not open to being wrong. You know, and ironically, you know, in research, one should be aware of their own biases in their research. I mean, that's part of designing clinical trials and studies. And, you know, I think about like if we were serving, as you said, if we were serving truth rather than ego, rather than status, because, you know, ultimately we've also, as as someone who's not in academia, we've created status around being in academia. And what I've noticed in the last couple of years, especially, is really discourse and dialogue has been eradicated. And I know that's been discussed in academia for a while, that that's been present in universities and has spread itself out into the way that we communicate online and the way that we orient around information. And what I really found fascinating is that it seems like the desire to question something or dialogue about especially a very sensitive topic, which there are many of those, and that gets determined by whoever's most sensitive, just the discussion itself is seen as harm and or violence and name calls too, because right away that eradicates any willingness to discuss 
what are some of the actual drawbacks of, you know, the, all the different, I mean, the conversations about medical interventions recently, the conversations about even side effects of those interventions, the conversation about trans, you know, and, and that world, all of it is like walking on landmines that people are afraid they're going to get canceled because they've observed their friends, their colleagues get totally canceled. It's like an even level higher than that now where it used to be whatever the controversial topics change over time, of course, and fluctuate in how, how much trouble you can get in for talking about them. But it's gotten to the point where it's not just that there are certain things you have to be really careful about saying or not saying. It's that sometimes it's considered indecent to even draw attention to the fact that those are things that you can't talk about. And it's sort of an effective strategy for controlling the conversation because you say, not only can you not say X, you can't say that you can't say X. And so it's a way of like controlling the conversation without people acknowledging that you're controlling the conversation. It might even be above that now. It's like you can't even say X or you can't even say that you can't even say that you can't even say X. Yeah, you can't even <laughs> you say can't, that you, you can't, can't say just don't It's talk just about so it. circular. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's gotten to be pretty complicated. And, and yeah, as you said, people really aren't aware of their biases. And even if they can accept on some kind of abstract level that people are biased. And people mostly do accept that on an abstract level, primarily because they see it in other people. So they see right. other people behave in ways that look biased. So when you say humans are biased, they're like, oh, of course, like that explains all these crazy <laughs> people. But they never think of themselves. And that's one thing I try to do is to get people to realize that it's not calling someone biased, of course, is you know, it's not a positive, uh, it's not a positive thing to say about someone. I understand that. But I think it's a kind of a mistake to think of it as this really negative thing. And instead, we should think of it as a just kind of human thing. It's part of our human psychology. And of course, in many situations, it can be bad. But the fact that humans are biased is just part of the nature of human psychology. And we should accept that in situations where it is a problem, we should try to discover, okay, is this a domain where we have a bias? In some domains, it doesn't matter. Like people have pro-family biases. And I think that's probably fine. Like we're okay with people loving their families and thinking their families are better than other people. It's only in certain domains where it can become really problematic, but people have a, a hard time acknowledging that they have biases at all. They want to believe they have this really pure objective view of the world. And uh, I think that's probably not true of almost anyone, <laughs> maybe someone, but not many people. Well, even the idea that one is objective is is formulated by yeah. subjectivity. You know, I was <laughs> recently interviewing an expert in propaganda, and I was just fascinated by like even the perspective that if I have this myopic view and then I believe that objectivity is going from, you know, a 10% focus to a 30% focus, I still don't realize there's another, you know, 330 degrees that I'm not. But I might think I've become drastically objective. I would imagine that most people consume, as you were saying, bias research or just information on bias from the perspective of, I can't wait to learn how bias Democrats are or, or Republicans are or pro-life or pro-choice or pro-vax or, you know, all the, it's always this other position. I can't wait to learn how dumb they are and how <laughs> rigid they are. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. It's people 
people seem to enjoy learning about bias, but yeah, it's because they want to explain why their enemies are so stupid and morally wrong. Uh, they don't generally reflect on how it could potentially explain their own behavior and how they consume information and evaluate information and evaluate other people. You know, telling people that this is true doesn't seem to help. So one of my favorite findings in social psychology is called the bias blind spot. And it's when you essentially show people that people have biases and that they themselves probably have biases. For example, by showing like they'll make mathematically impossible assertions about how smart or good looking or athletic or helpful they are, people still say that they're not biased. It's impossible that my assessments are biased, even when it's just like a mathematical pretty much guarantee that they are. So not only are people biased about a lot of their own characteristics, they're biased about their biases. And that's why no one can see them. And people have such a hard time acknowledging, accepting it. And therefore, no one feels responsibility to deal with it because it's not me, it's them. Right. Yeah. What a beautiful way to break up with people too. The, <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. I, I was introduced to your work, which I'm so grateful for. I was introduced to it via the Human Progress podcast. And that also led me to looking up a lot of studies that you referenced and also your article with, I think it's Quillette. Quillette is that how yeah. you say it? Yeah. And it was called The Evolutionary Advantage of Playing Victim. Mm-hmm. I am constantly going from one thing to the next. You know, I, I live a busy life and I'm often grabbing my nutrition on the go. And I, like you, I'm guessing, want to eat lots of greens. I want to crush greens all day long. I don't want to take the time to make a salad or do a juicing and have to deal with all that mess. And so Organifi's green juice has really been the answer for me. It's super simple. It just takes 30 seconds to prep. You got no shopping, no chopping, no juicing, no blending. You just add water, you mix it up, and you drink it up, and you let your body soak in the benefits. And they've recently just made their flavors super powered with crisp green apple, which I love, and also mint. So it has 11 superfoods, all of which are 100% organic. It has 600 milligrams of clinically proven ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps support a healthy response to stress, chlorella, moringa, spirulina, turmeric, and more, all of which work together in a sweet symphony of incredible energy-boosting and detoxing benefits. If you're looking for an easy, delicious, and cost-effective way to get your greens, go to Organifi.com slash love. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love and you save 20% off this green juice as well as all of Organifi's products. All the research that you referenced was like blowing my nerdy research <laughs> brain. And I wanted to explore some of that stuff with you. I'm curious first, just for maybe the sake of you listening, how might we maybe define playing victim versus being an actual victim or just to differentiate, you know, for people listening, like we're not denying the experience of victimization, but we're talking about perhaps the possibility of exploiting victimization or weaponizing victimization as I think we can all, if we try to set our biases aside, see that that is playing out on a pretty large level 
maybe unless we're in those groups, that would be hard to identify. So yeah, I'm curious if we could maybe start there and, and why is there a benefit? The paper that I, or the, I guess the cool article I wrote and what I talked about on that human progress podcast a lot was sort of centered around this one paper, but it also included a sort of little mini review of a lot of the recent research on victimhood. What we see is that of course, in the real world, there are people who are who are victims or people who are routinely victimized throughout their life and thus could be potentially characterized like as a victim in the sense that that's extended throughout maybe years or decades of their life and they've suffered a lot and they would deserve some kind of support or certainly we would want to provide support for people like that if we could. However, what some of the research has been finding recently is that people also use victim status to try to extract resources from other people. And this is associated with a particular set of personality characteristics that are generally unflattering. This paper looks at victim signaling. And what that is, is not just the situation of being a victim, but the tendency to want to tell other people that you're a victim. You want other people to know about your suffering when things, when bad things happen to you. You want to tell other people how unfair the world is to you or how unfair other people are to you. And people who tend to do this, people who constantly want to talk about how much they've been victimized in their life, tend to be people who are fairly manipulative, uh, who will lie to get resources from other people, people who will exaggerate negative interactions to try to put other people down and get ahead themselves. This is associated with what's called the dark triad, which are a set of personality characteristics that include narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. They're all related, but they're kind of characterized by a sort of lack of empathy for the suffering of, of other people, viewing the self as superior to other people, being willing to manipulate other people. And there have now been a couple of studies looking at people who have this tendency to view themselves as a victim, to feel like the world is unfair to them, to feel like other people treat them poorly all the time, and to want to tell other people. And this seems to be a little bit of a stable personality trait. And it's just really associated with a lot of negative interactions with other people. And so what kind of happens is these people have a sort of perpetual tendency to view themselves as being treated poorly by other people. And thus, they're willing to treat other people poorly and take advantage of other people as a means to kind of like compensate for their own perceived suffering. And I want to say that these aren't clinical populations. So these aren't necessarily people who have like severe mental health issues. It's just probably everyone has a tendency to do this to some degree. Like probably all of us have a tendency to maybe malinger once in a while, or maybe, you know, you get your feelings hurt just uh, because you want someone to comfort you and make you feel better. You want to get attention. But some people do this more than others as well. And whatever this personality trait is seems to be relatively stable across time and across contexts. That's fascinating. Makes me think from an evolutionary perspective, there was some service to that. You know, if I was suffering mentally or emotionally, you know, because I think in the brain, the same place lights up when we're experiencing mental anguish as physical anguish. And so evolutionarily, it's posited that that's in order to draw people. So we're not alone. However, when we're seeing resources allocated to those who maybe perpetually do this, then we might be incentivized 
you know, there's a line where it goes from being like this authentic, maybe even unconscious desire for to be with people and to experience empathy and, you know, having your back rubbed and the good stuff that comes from when you're sad to being in a place where we're actually exploiting it. Yeah. So these, so when people have a tendency to signal victimhood, there is, so the kind of the other side of the coin and the other side of the research on this is that people do, they will give sympathy and resources and status and even to some degree, moral impunity to people who are victims. They get some kind of like legitimacy or they're like licensed to behave in particular ways. So there are varieties of studies, a variety of studies showing that people who are perceived as victims, when they behave badly themselves, they're judged less harshly. So this is kind of a benefit of being a victim. When people portray themselves as victims, they are liked more. People just like them more. They think they're better people. When people portray themselves as victims, we're more willing to depart with our own resources to help them. So there's a clear benefit to being viewed as a victim. Now, I don't want to say there aren't also costs because there certainly would be like traditionally, and especially if you lived in like a really harsh and dangerous environment, signaling to other people that you're this helpless victim who is weak or can't get yourself back on track. You need other people to help you. That is something that other people could exploit, which makes me think that one reason we're seeing increasing levels of people claiming to be victims and what's called competitive victimhood, people essentially trying to compete for who's the most victimized, who deserves the most sympathy, who should get the most benefits. I think the reason we're seeing that now is because we live in a relatively safe environment with a lot of surplus. You know, a lot of people have more than they need. We have more food than we need. We spend our money on things that aren't really essential, like Netflix and, you know, we (laughs) buy too many shoes. (laughs) Uh, People have a lot of surplus resources. Uh, So when you live in these kinds of environments where that are really safe and people aren't going to exploit people who are vulnerable, when you see someone who's weak and needy, you're not thinking, I should rob that person. You're thinking, oh, I should help that person out. In those kinds of environments, playing the victim, portraying yourself as a victim will be more beneficial than it would be in other more dangerous environments with scarce resources. That's one reason this, I don't, I don't know exactly how to, how to like frame the sort of movement we're seeing, but there does seem to be a sort of trend in the past 10 or so years where people are clamoring for this victimhood status more than they used to. And it's used to gain status more than it used to be. And it's just more part of our culture and what people talk about and what people worry about and think about and how people want to spend their resources. So because there's this very real benefit and because those benefits, I think, have been increasing in recent years, more people want to use that as their strategy to get ahead in life and get status and both social status and moral status and and get resources that way. Well, and it's protected too by this moat of inability to criticize or call out that type of behavior. And when I consider not only the inability to call it out, but also how it's often protected by righteousness, you know, the moralization of our own behaviors is fascinating. Like that I which I understand, like I understand that people perceive themselves generally as good, you know, and they 
perceive themselves generally as being willing to do the right thing and be, and I saw a lot in the messaging in the last couple of years from a public health perspective that there was a lot of use of this language. Like, this is what a good person would do. This is, you know, this is the right thing. I'm from Canada. So that language was used a lot. And I was just observing how that was making me feel, but also how that was making other people feel when they made that choice, which I have no judgment on the choice. I don't care what people choose. I was just very observant of the language and how in a way it was, which I'm sure social psychologists were engaged in the public health messaging. Public health messaging and epidemiology is intertwined with how do we change behavior on a mass level and how there was this inability to even converse about it. And when someone is seen as being a victim, they are also now given more permission to have behaviors that are maybe immoral or, I mean, that's fascinating. Cause to me, I'm like, oh, so we like give them a card, like a pass being like, okay, well, people have fucked you over. So go fuck a bunch of people over. It happens at both levels. So it happens with individuals. If I portray myself as a victim, other people are going to give me moral passes to behave immorally. It could be because I'm seeking revenge, but it could be because I've suffered so much trauma, I cannot possibly be expected to function like a normal human being. So I'm held to lower standards, lower moral standards relative to other people, which helps me because then I get punished less. But it also happens internally where people feel personally justified in behaving badly. And I think this is why it's such a pernicious thing, because oftentimes in some kind of interpersonal conflict, let's say I do something bad to you. Often I would know I did something bad. Maybe I was having a moment a moment of weakness or I was having like an emotional time and I couldn't control what I was saying or I felt as though I couldn't control what I was saying. Anyway, I say something hurtful to you. Oftentimes I would acknowledge that I behaved badly and I would apologize to you and you would say, okay, you know what, don't do it again, but whatever, let's move on. In the case of the victimhood, you get trapped in a really negative cycle where if I do something to you and maybe I don't take full responsibility for it, maybe I didn't intend it, so I think you shouldn't react in a negative way, but you feel personally victimized by me, then you feel like, well, I deserve to get revenge against her. And so you do something bad to me. And now I feel victimized and I feel like you're the bad guy and I'm the innocent victim. And so then I feel like I can get revenge against you and it's justified. And so what happens is both people are willing to continue to engage in really like aggressive and negative ways while both feeling morally justified. So it's not like I'm doing this bad thing and I know it's bad and I'm going to feel guilty later. It's I'm doing this thing and it's right and it's good and you should suffer. And you feel that way too. And this happens both in interpersonal situations and in group conflicts where groups get in conflicts. And I mean, sometimes this could be on a small scale, but sometimes it's a big scale. It could be countries that are killing each other's people, religious groups that are killing each other's people. And both groups feel like we're 100% in the right and you're 100% in the wrong. And everything we do, we only do because you deserve it and because we're trying to protect ourselves. But both groups feel the same way. And it makes it impossible to escape the conflict because no one's taking responsibility for ever having done anything wrong. And in fact, both groups think they've only done everything right. And so it's like (laughs) this way where you can engage in behavior that in most situations, you would consider objectively morally bad, but 
the perpetrators feel like it is the righteous thing to do. And it can just lead to mutual destruction, you know, if, if you can't escape it. And it's hard to escape. Right, because someone has to stop and pause and think about it, it would uh, cause so much dissonance because then you'd have to open up to the pain you've created through this conflict. And I, that's why I would imagine it's a psychologically protective behavior because it, it allows us to harm others and prevents us from experiencing the harm. I think Brene Brown talks about this, that the dehumanization always begins with language. Like we begin to separate groups by talking about those groups. And then once we make them an other, then we can actually harm them. There's not as much of a biological cost to the harming. I was really curious about the GoFundMe study that you mentioned. Can you speak to that a little bit and just what the research saw in that? Yeah, so it was a study where they had people read GoFundMe pages from two people who were both looking for college tuition, or maybe it was art school. It was some kind of tuition for uh, some kind of schooling. In both cases, the person was in need of money to support their tuition. But in one case, the person told a sort of history of trauma from their childhood. I think they had like a bad relationship with their mom or something. And in the case where the person tells of past trauma, even though both people are in need of the money in this particular situation, the one who suffered past trauma and shares that on the GoFundMe page, people are more interested in donating to that person. So you could take a context where potentially your situation is completely unrelated to some other domain of suffering. But if you can show that you've suffered, then people will be more sympathetic to you and will give you status and benefits in other domains to compensate for your suffering. What's kind of interesting about this, especially because it's a GoFundMe page, is now a lot of people appeal to third party total strangers for recompense. You know, in a typical interpersonal conflict, person A does something to person B, and maybe person A feels bad and makes it up to person B, or maybe person B's family and friends help them out because they're like, well, person A is a jerk. I'm sorry that happened to you. Let's get you back on your feet. Now what you have is people posting on public platforms that potentially reach hundreds or thousands or millions of people that they've never met and share tales of their suffering and get resources from strangers who know nothing about the situation. They know nothing about who this person is. They know nothing about whether that person does this all the time, constantly posts these pleas for money. And anyone who would question the legitimacy of an appeal like that would be viewed as really callous and cruel and like, how dare you question this person? And on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense because if someone's really suffered a horrible tragedy, the last thing you want to do is pile on and potentially accuse them of lying and being manipulative and trying to, you know, essentially lie to people to get money. But if no one feels that they can question those kinds of appeals, that will allow a certain sort of people to take advantage of those platforms to essentially dupe people into giving them resources based on false stories of trauma or, you know, other suffering. Yeah. And I know you mentioned in the in the article that that then makes us question all appeals. You know, it like removes the legitimate the legitimacy of of legitimate claims where people really do want to help. Like I think about a time I was in New York and I was walking down the street and this 
guy came, he was talking to me, he was a real great conversationalist and he was telling me how his house just burnt down or his building and he needed baby formula and, you know, him and his, and he showed me some picture of his kid, et cetera. And I, at the time I didn't have any cash on me because of course I'd be like, yeah, here's 20 bucks, go buy the formula you need. And I, I probably just people see me and they're like, there's a sucker. <laughs> and I, I was, I just legitimately had no time and no cash. So I, I, I was like, you know, in New York, you're like one thing to, you're walking 20 blocks. So anyways, fast forward like six months later, the same guy comes up to me with the same story in New York too. You got to wonder what are the chances in a bit of a different neighborhood. One was in Alphabet City. The next one was in Lower East Side. And I was like, this guy got me like this. <laughs> Anyways, today I was actually at a gas station and a woman came up to me with her kid, came out of their car and she said, can you help our family? Like we need gas. I was like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll put $20 in your car. And I was thinking the whole time, like, am I, am I being duped here? Because I saw the manipulation of the child with her, of course, who was told to get out of the car with her to appeal to it. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather someone have gas than worry about rather, whether they're victimizing me for $20 in gas. But I really saw the manipulation that was going on. Even if she needed it, she was really using a tactic. And you're right, it does delegitimize our perception of actual real need, or and maybe we become cynical about it. Mm -hmm. I think I'm similar to you, and I tend to be a little bit gullible to these kinds of things. I had a, a similar situation. I was in LA not that long ago, and I had an Uber driver from driving me from the airport to my Airbnb. And he told this really fantastic story about how he was here in political asylum. And he was, you know, the government, like people were, he got shot, you know, and he had to flee the country and he's trying to get his daughter and his, you know, his family. Anyway, it was like a very, it was good. It was a good, it would have been a great movie. So I gave him like a great tip. And I like get out of the car and I'm texting my friend and I'm telling him the story. And they're like, yeah, you know, that was all bullshit, right? <laughs> and I'm like, it couldn't have been. <laughs> it, it was, was too so good. fantastic. He like showed me, like he kind of referenced like the location on his body where he got shot. And, but it, but it, it is, it's unfortunate because you want to help people who have like these circumstances. And, you know, with the kid, like if there's a woman, she has a child and she's like, struggling to make ends meet of course you want to help totally her. but then yeah the more people take advantage of those kinds of things the more other people are going to start to question legitimate stories and then the more genuine victims are actually going to struggle to get help but i don't know what you do about it that's the the, the tricky thing well yeah because you know you mentioned in the article too that evolutionarily you know it was it was easier to be more discerning you know when you were just hanging out in a community and everyone knew that Tom was a shyster, you know, but that is impossible. You know, I see Instagram accounts that are, that spam my account in the comment section that are literally structured to ask, they paste the same comment. Hey, my family, can I just, everyone help out? And you go to their profile and it's been uploaded. You know, it's, and the only reason I say is that it's spamming is I get it. It's all the time and it's been happening for like two years from the same account, you know? 
and I see they're probably making lots of money. I know that when they, I think there's some research where they followed people who were asking for money were genuinely making tons of money a year. Yeah, they're making now, like again, $100,000 a year. <laughs> right, right. I think it was, in, like, I forget where uh, that was. I'm a barista and I just gave you 5000 <laughs> Right. And yeah. again, like I don't want anything that we're talking about to be perceived as we're minimizing actual victims or minimizing people who are on the street asking for money who genuinely need it. I think it's just more to point out to how it, so how many people walk by a homeless person being like, eh, get out of here. You know, like not even thinking about supporting them because they've felt like they've been so maybe duped. You talk about the combination of victimization with virtue signaling. And you referenced studies from the Immorality Lab at UBC. First off, the name <laughs> of that lab. If you were working at it, that must be quite a like, ah, oh, we work at the lab of immorality. There's there's actually a saying in academia called research is me search. So it's you study the things that are like intriguing to you because they're <laughs> so it's like if you're in the immorality lab and research is me search, what does that say about you? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally. Amen. Well, I thought it was super interesting because it's like virtue signalers were more interested in looking morally good and less interested in being morally good. You talked about a coin flipping study, I found that to be, I was like, what? How is that even? So yeah, I'm curious if you could walk us through that crossover of virtuosity with victimhood and then maybe bring us into that uh, adventure of the coin flip. Yeah. So they looked at victim signaling, which is what I talked about for just your tendency to want to share the misfortunes you've suffered. But they also looked at virtue signaling, which is your tendency to want to share with other people what a morally good person you are. But what they did was they controlled for people's internalization of like how important it is to them to actually be a good moral person. So how much do I value trying to be a good person? People who tend to victim signal also tend to be high in virtue signaling. They like to also tell people that they're morally good people, but they were actually, they actually placed less importance on their own moral identity in the sense that it was less important to them to actually be a morally good person, even though they wanted people to believe that they were a morally good person. So what this suggests is potentially there's a sort of, like a sort of person that wants to portray themselves to other people in a variety of ways that will get them resources. So people will give resources to people who signal victimhood, but they also will give resources to people who signal virtue. So we want to help other really morally good people. If we know that someone is really selfless and pro-social, we want to do something nice for them because we want to reward them for being you know, a good citizen. But people who are kind of manipulative and who learn these different strategies for getting status and resources and attention and praise, they can use multiple techniques to try to attain those things, right? So one is signaling victimhood, another signaling virtue. And so these people do both. They signal both their victimhood and their virtue. That's a serious toolbox. <laughs> right. <laughs> but these same people who were particularly likely to signal their victimhood and their virtue, they a lot of the time in social psychology, we set up these like tasks that are meant to look one way to a participant, but they're really designed to give them an opportunity to cheat or do something, you know, sneaky lie. In this particular case, they had this coin flip task 
where they were supposed to like click the button um, to flip. They were supposed to pick like heads or tails and then flip the button and it would turn the coin up and they would essentially lose. Then when it was something like if they clicked next, they actually got to flip the coin again. And it said something like, sometimes this task glitches and it will give you a second chance, but don't flip the coin again. Just like click next, you'll just have to skip the task again. So it essentially gives them the opportunity to cheat and flip the coin again after they lost the first time. And claim it's a glitch. Well, so the glitch really happened. The glitch is said to happen, but the the experimenters ask them, ignore the glitch and move on. So you've lost. Report that you lost. But if they're trying to be sneaky, they might flip it again, even though they were told not to, and then get another chance to win the bonus. And they found that people who score high in this virtuous victim signaling were more likely to cheat and take another shot at winning the bonus than people who score lower. So the kind of humorous thing here is that these people are, so they, they actually had, a, so these same people, there were a couple other tasks they did. One was looking at purchasing of counterfeit products and people who score high in virtuous victim signaling were more likely to want to purchase a variety of counterfeit products. And then they had one, which to me is perhaps maybe the most concerning to me was this one where they had participants read the scenario where I think they're like an intern at an organization, but they're in competition with this other intern. And they read this description where it says like, something kind of feels off with this other intern that you're working with. They're always really nice to your face, but you know, like you kind of think things feel weird. <laughs> anyway, they give this the participants this evaluation and it's a variety of things like did this person do x did this person do y that would be given to the employer as an evaluation of that other person and people who score higher on virtuous victim signaling are more likely to say that the other person did all of these bad things to them that never happened in the vignette so like they put me down to my face they embarrassed me in front of my colleagues and none of this was described so they were like making up new facts to take the other person down so that they could get ahead in this situation. So so these wow. are people who want people to view them as morally good people, but they seem to be behaving morally worse by, you know, what most of us would consider to by be all standards. Yeah. Yeah. By, by yeah, typical yeah. standards. <laughs> this makes me think of uh, Robert Valoran's work, who's out of the University of Montreal, where he's... He studies obsessive passions versus harmonious passions. I can't remember the specific details, but let's say someone is obsessively passionate about fitness versus harmoniously passionate. Someone who's obsessively passionate doesn't get the perceived benefit they think they do from the task or the exercise because they're so obsessed about it. And they're more likely when he looked at people who were obsessively environmentalists versus harmoniously, they were more likely to commit a terrorist act and less likely to recycle. What? <laughs> and I thought that was really fascinating. Like they're the people most obsessed with oh. this and yet they're the ones least likely. So it made me think of like such mm -hmm. a crossover with the research that you're speaking to. That might be a variant of the same kind of thing. It might be, I mean, I don't know how he measures obsessive is it obsessive passion, you said? Yeah, versus harmonious. I don't know how he measures obsessive passion, but I could imagine that there's a certain sort of person who, say you're environmentalist, some people really care about the environment. And so in their private lives, they pay big costs 
you know, they bring their own grocery bag, they recycle everything, or in fact, you know, some people try to not even produce trash at all. So they care so much that they behave that way all the time. Whereas you could imagine other people who just want everyone to know, I'm an environmentalist, I care about X, I do this, I donate here, I volunteer here, I take my grocery bags to the yeah. to the store. I um, hug trees. But then when no one's looking, you know, they're eating out of plastic containers and tossing it in the bin, you know. Right. So maybe the same kind of thing would happen with any like a vegan, like a vegan who wants everyone to know they're vegan. And then when no one's looking, they're having like a bacon cheeseburger for someone who's like really authentic. <laughs> concerned about animal welfare who would never do that and doesn't care if anyone knows that they're actually vegan or not. The vegans you gotta watch. They get really reactive. <laughs> you get they get really reactive. No offense if you're vegan. And you know, I'm I think a person it's an who's tried many times, but the cheese the cheese calls to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I yeah, I got a really bad podcast review once because I said that plants also have consciousness. And so like, there should be a similar consideration, of course, you know, and then I got a negative review because of that. And I thought, that's so fascinating. Like, we can't even have a discussion about it. And you can't say plants have consciousness, even though there are experiments showing if you talk positively to a plant, it grows better than if you talk negatively. I think there's a lot we don't know about consciousness in animals and plants. I don't know if plants deserve the same moral consideration as animals, but also animals are maybe on a continuum and some people put them on a continuum and which ones deserve moral concern and which ones don't. Who gets to decide? And we should break that down another time. <laughs> but I think it is, it's helpful to be able to at least have the conversation about it and people who get like really intense, they're only driving people away, you know, from having the conversation. So yeah, you know, when that occurred, I was like, wow, we can't even have a dialogue. I can't have a different opinion. And now the podcast itself is a one star podcast because one piece of content. That person's listening right now and they are not happy. (laughs) Well, probably not because they were really mad. But you know, I think what's ironic about it is like, we we do that, right? We have one thing that offends us. And then now we can't participate we make everything about that mention that one thing bad and i mean this just speaks again to the circumstances we're in which this driven by emotionality too you know i i find that fascinating like you mentioned it a bit in the podcast where you know when people say and i think this is from maybe jonathan heights research or maybe he's referencing other research too that when people agree with the term words are violence they are more likely to approve of physical violence. And I thought that's interesting because, of course, when someone says words hurt, that's internal. We can't tell, but we can tell physical pain is actually being experienced. And that's why it's so hard to – a big conflict that has occurred in sort of the psychological space that I've seen both, you know, on Psychology Today and and in the Instagram psychology world, if that's even a fucking thing, is (laughs) – A little bit. Yeah, this conversation about – trauma. And, you know, they talk about big T trauma versus little T trauma. But this idea that if someone can call anything trauma, then it's not the appropriate use of the term, which again is subjective. And, you know, one person's 10 out of 10 trauma can be someone else's one, you know, and and that's the interesting thing. I mean, one thing that I find kind of interesting about a lot of studies on people who are authoritarian, for example, who would say that saying certain things is completely off limits, but they're also more likely to use violence to elevate their own political 
goals. But one thing I find interesting about the physical violence versus words thing, I mean, I'm personally of the the view that we should let words roll off us, you know, better where physical violence is obviously never acceptable. But I do wonder, like, how many people would rather, like, be hit in the face than, like, called something really nasty? Probably some percentage of people. But I guess that gets to your point, like, what's some one person's 10 might be someone else's one and vice versa. Um, and how do we come to agree on what counts as trauma or something that now you've experienced so much suffering in your life that society should take care of you and other people owe you something. And we just will never agree on these things, especially as a lot of our terms expand to include more kinds of actions within what we define as violence or trauma or harm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that I even want to keep differentiating and pointing to the gray, right? Of of saying, you know, this is not minimizing the impact of words. This is not saying that they can't be harmful. We're on a very slippery slope because the perception of what words are okay and what aren't are in the individual's experience. And if our society oscillates around the people with the highest level of sensitivity and the people with the lowest capacity for actual discourse, we're going to be in some serious trouble because the idea that you spoke about it before about academics, two people, experts in their field, opposing views, there's a truth that lives between their views that is so much deeper and more profound and true than the perceived ends and binaries they're on. And I suppose this speaks to left versus right, blue versus red, Republican and Democrat. There is a functioning society that can operate when we have discussions. It's just it's seemingly like emotional reactivity is saying we can't have discussions anymore. I think it's partially because it's a really effective tactic to gaining in-group status to be really rude and condescending to your out-group members. I have actually, speaking of psych today, I have one article there called uh, How We Empower Political Extremists. And it covers these couple of studies and some other research, but I focus mainly on these two studies that find that people are attracted to extremists on their own side because those are people who are extremists on your own side are really loyal group members. You know where they stand. You know that you can trust them. They're always going to vote for your side. They're going to share a very predictable set of views. And so we're attracted to these people because they make us feel like they're group loyal. They're good group members and they're always going to support your side. But what happens then is people who are Maybe you're a liberal, but you're like a moderate liberal and you have like fairly nuanced views and you're pretty liberal on some issues and maybe more centrist on others. You're more attracted to these extremists, these rigid, dogmatic, really nasty people than they are back to you and vice versa on the other side. So the more like nuanced people, the calmer people, the people who actually think about issues and have different views on different things and they're not just like, party line, everything, as loud as I can, hate the other group, those people give status and benefits to the extremists, then the extremists have more control over the conversation and the groups get pulled further apart from one another. And then on top of that, 
there's a lot of research that looks specifically at extremity, political ideological extremity, and they're psychologically, again, a lot of undesirable characteristics relative to other people. People who have extreme views tend to be very rigid and dogmatic and intolerant, more willing to support violence to advance their means. And these are our heroes and our role models and our in-group. And I'm, I've been puzzling for a long time, like, how can we make the moderate people cool again, <laughs> if they ever were? Maybe they never were. But like, well, why can't it be cool to uh, be kind of a little bit less intense about your views and admit that it's complicated and admit that there are trade-offs and admit that not everything supports your side and the other group has some decent points and we should you know, cooperate with them. But that's that's not what people lean into. I mean, I'll point to a few of my biases here. One, just so uh, before I say what I'm <laughs> about to this. say, acknowledging yeah, your biases. <laughs> I, I think it's important to express them. First You're an one is, I, yeah, the first one is I'm an extremist, so everything you said is false, and the moderates are the extremists. I didn't mean all that. Everyone listening, first part is I bought a counterfeit Tag Hauer watch in college, so I might be more prone to certain things. But then I bought Folkleys up, in eighth grade. Oh, I had Folkleys too. Serious. So uh, you go to DC. I point that out more to desiring the status of the watch and not being able to afford it. Although, (laughs) who knows, victimization right there Mm -hmm. in my justification. (laughs) The other side is that I have felt politically that I was for sure formally identified more as liberal. And I grew up in a very conservative place. It's like in Alberta, which is more like the Texas of Canada, you know, very oil and gas based. So just more conservative. And I always identify with more liberal ideologies, support systems, programs, all that kind of stuff. And in the last couple of years, I have felt like I don't identify a lot with the extreme forms of liberalism. And I don't identify with the extreme forms of conservatism And I do find myself just being centrist. And it's like I didn't do anything, but I I do want to point to that my my bias, I do recognize if I'm consuming information that I do experience what you're saying about the extremism uh, or extremists of my views because there is a belief. And so I'm cognizant of it, so I don't pursue it. It's even like gun laws. Right now, that's a big point of discussion, obviously, and and we're not going to get deep into it because, again, it's very emotionally triggering for people. But what's fascinating is someone who historically, if you had said, get rid of this type of gun, this one, I grew up in Canada, I'd be like, yeah, get it. But now that I actually see how Canadian politics have eradicated some of my rights and just made laws just based on, you know, whatever they have used as the information, which is not public to make those decisions. Again, that's all very controversial. I now see why a citizen might want a gun. So it's almost like I now see why in Canada, conservatism seems to be the one thing that is at least appealing to what feels like rehumanizing my perspectives. Just so I'm clear to everyone listening, I have felt like it should be a choice to get a medical intervention. And that has been a very controversial perspective. I think everyone should do whatever they want. But just sitting with that position, which might make you feel a certain way too, I recognize that it's like that perspective is not even available on the left side in Canada. And so I have found myself more, there is more appeal to 
conservatism on the extreme in Canada, but knowing that it actually doesn't represent my views. So I just see how many of the biases you're speaking of. They re- the research is validating in my experience too. I sometimes wonder if there's like this new identity because a lot of the people I know who are maybe like you and like me and probably most of the people in academia that I tend to like talk to about stuff, they are people who kind of lean left, who always did sort of, but they came from like conservative backgrounds. Uh, Maybe they came from, they're from the US, maybe they came from like the Midwest and they have a lot of family that is conservative. And I think what that, this is my working hypothesis. I, I haven't tested this, but but I've talked to enough people that I'm starting to feel like I'm onto something that people who kind of have this tendency to sort of lean liberal, but who have spent a lot of time with conservatives, grew up with them, just come to realize that they're not all terrible people. (laughs) And so once you get into a certain set of like, you're surrounded by nothing but liberals and they're saying how horrible conservatives are, you're like, no, that's not Right. right. They're Especially when we're that. secretly identifying as one now. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But like, there's so many different reasons people are conservative. It's not one reason. Like right, different people right. have different things. And and so you you start to disagree with like the characterization of people that you're pretty familiar with as this one bad thing. And then that causes you to like disengage from the group a little bit. But what I'm wondering is if that is now its own kind of identity. These people who are maybe like more centrist now than they would have considered themselves. And they're like, the left has gone too far left, but the right is also too far right. Like, where are my middle people? (laughs) And then that becomes like an, exactly, that becomes an identity. And so if we're like, we would give status to like extreme moderates, you know, whatever that means. (laughs) Maybe people who are extremely against the extremists. Right, which would maybe make them extremists, you know? (laughs) It's when I consider that, and again, I might be being informed by my bias, it seems like what presents as a moderate right now is being called right-wing. To dialogue about a very sensitive topic, Jonathan Haidt would have been considered left before. I think he's a life, in his writing, he talks about he's a lifelong Democrat. And now in academia, he's probably seen as having some right-leaning views. I would imagine the same is true of many people who dialogue and discuss things. I think Bill Maher would be a good example of that, who's now, Russell Brand has been called right-wing now hmm. because because he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Uh, okay. Russell Brand, for sure, has always <laughs> been the most extreme liberal, you know? Yeah. So. I think we do need to make it sexy again. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's people who've kind of stood up for conversation in some of the areas that liberals don't want discussed tend to get labeled as right wing. People who like get lumped in with like free speech, free inquiry, that kind of thing get lumped in with right wing. But it is true. Like in academia, if you're moderately left, you're relatively right compared to most people. So like John Haidt, even though... I would probably classify him as a liberal and he would probably classify himself that way relative to all of his peers. He would be probably one of the furthest right wing people, but relative to society, he would still be left. So what is your reference point? (laughs) Well, and if academia, he speaks to this in his book, Coddling of the American Mind, that if academia, which 
academic centers have really canceled discussion about the topics, the highly sensitive topics we're talking about. And because of that, instead of having debates between what is actually left and what is actually right, universities are having debates between far left and moderate left. And so it's not even like we're not holding our ideas accountable. And I think if we cease as humans to participate in conversations that can get us canceled, then we actually participate in the canceling of them. And so I think it's a, you know, something I'm continuing to try to lean into, you know, this idea that like I recognize all these biases and human emotions that are driving why I might, you know, be more drawn to the extreme conservatism. But that's like anything you watch when a culture or society feels exploited or extracted or not served by one, it often oscillates to this very opposite end. And I know that that's not the answer. The answer is always somewhere in the middle. So being able to observe my emotion, but not let it choose for me, again, is hard because I have to be, I have to have even awareness of all of the ways that it's influencing me, which I know that I have blind spots for days, you know. We all do. (laughs) We all do. But I was actually thinking about what you were saying with the like you're participating in the canceling by refusing to talk about it. I I had this study that uh, I haven't posted a preprint yet, but I've conducted the analyses where I'm looking at self-censorship among psychology professors. And we see really high levels of self-censorship among psychology professors across all of these different topics. But then we also kind of look at attitudes toward the sort of like cancellation movement, like when a scholar forwards a really controversial position what should happen to that person? And almost everyone says nothing, just scientific criticism. That's the only suitable thing. We shouldn't try to fire the person. We shouldn't call them names. We shouldn't slam them on social media. But we see this happening time and time and time again. So we're like, okay, well, if only like 3% of academics support this, but we're seeing it happening all the time, what's going on? And I think what's going on is exactly what you said, which is everyone's so scared to speak up that they're letting this vocal minority of people who want to cancel people, who want to call them names, smear their reputation for eternity because they asked a question in an insensitive way or they said something in the wrong way or they asserted something that's empirically true, but we're not supposed to talk about it. (laughs) I think what's happening is so many people are keeping quiet and refusing to stand up to this minority of people that they have so much power now and they can pressure institutions like universities, but probably other institutions as well, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, into firing people or worse, because no one else will say, that's too much. You've gone too far. Like, they said something stupid, they should say, my bad, and then we move on. (laughs) Uh, Their life doesn't need to be over. And so now I'm like, well, what do you do to embolden people to speak up? Like, how can you get people not to be so afraid of their own, uh, of being targeted by these people that they're willing to come together as a majority of people? and say, no, we should be able to have conversations. We should be able to ask difficult questions. Uh, And if someone says something wrong, we should be pretty forgiving, move on. So that's what I'm working on now. I'll let you know if I come up with any good solutions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please. I think it'd be interesting to explore 
the perception of one's own behavior in participating in restorative justice mm-hmm. versus the actual participation. You know, mm-hmm. I think about what you're saying about the perception of costs for someone making a poor decision or a poor tweet mm-hmm. versus the actual cost. And, you know, I consider perhaps an academic, I was just reading actually a, a article from Barry Weiss, mm-hmm. who was talking about a academic who was recently made a poor choice tweet, apologized for it. And then his friend and colleague hung him out to dry and pursued, you know, saying that it's hard to process a friend saying something like this, like presented it in this sort of, you know, righteous way. And as opposed to just, as you're saying, like, it's let them friend. understand. <laughs> just well, talk to them. <laughs> and even if they're a stranger, like they, yeah, yeah, like first, why not resolve it in the private mm-hmm. quarters of a university? But, you mm-hmm. know, the paper, it was a paper, I think it might've been the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. I might be misquoting that. So apologies if I am. But in it, they actually suspended this author for a month mm-hmm. as opposed – and it wasn't like it was bad and mm-hmm. it was in poor taste. But to suspend someone for a month – again, some people might agree with that as the outcome. It seems like we're reacting so much from emotionality and not from rationality. And I might be being biased again in that. But I just really hope that we can throw back Thursday some critical thinking – not just critical thinking when it's not critical of our own views, you know, but critical thinking of our critical thinking. And that involves some meta, not Facebook meta, but like meta being able to think about how we think. So this person who go who went after their friend after they tweeted something insensitive, did they tweet their anger? Yes. Okay. Yes, they tweeted so it. So that and- tells you so much because that tells you that that person was trying to use their friend's foible to gain status themselves. Because if you just thought what he said was so bad, you would probably call him up and say, hey, here's why I think what you said is really bad and could be harmful. I think you should consider taking it down. Or if they really thought it warranted being suspended, they would just email the department chair and say, here's what he said, and I think he needs to be suspended. The fact that you took it to the pub, not you, this person, that they took it to the public to complain about the comment, that's them essentially like abusing their friend to try to get likes and retweets and attention. And I've seen that happen many times where academia is a pretty small world, like a lot of people know a lot of people and you could just shoot someone an email and say, hey, you screwed up or hey, that's not true or hey, maybe you should rethink like how you worded this. But they take it to Twitter to complain, which just it reveals a lot about what people are actually trying to accomplish versus what they say they're trying to accomplish. And what they're trying to accomplish is get their reputation as the righteous, you know, person fighting for justice, even at the expense of their friendship or whatever. Uh, I just find that very off-putting. But It feels just so childish. and It, feels, it does. It feels very childish. Well, it makes it so that the world itself is perceptually and realistically not psychologically safe, not safe to make mistakes, not safe to say the wrong thing, which how do you develop? Like I couldn't imagine being a teenager and someone in their early 20s or mid 20s participating in high school and academia in whatever capacity that is, being wanting to self-express and then, 
you know, being worried. Like everybody probably has a cancelable statement from their teens that was not documented, you know? And even if they were joking, even if they're, whatever it might be. Taking some issue, like, that's really serious and treating it too trivially. Like, right. when you're 16, you don't know, like, what's serious and what's not. Well, part of being 16 is actually saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Is actually having some social consequence or feedback from mm-hmm. your teacher, from students, from other people, mm-hmm. but not having your life destroyed, not having right. your reputation destroyed. Again, I'm. this isn't saying people shouldn't be held accountable for mm-hmm. things they've never been held accountable for. But there needs to be a proportionate response. And what happens if we all said, how do we help someone learn from something and build a better society? You know, as opposed to how do we make them suffer? And then all that does is make everyone afraid to talk about the things that matter for fear of being canceled. And that's why in some way I admire the comedians who their job has always been to bring attention to the things that are funny, but not and ridiculous and not and and to be offensive and not. And they're uncancelable because they don't care. They were uncancelable, I think. Even for them, it's probably changing. There's two groups of people I wondered about, and I would love to have a conversation with them. One's the comedians, because they used to be, yeah, they would be offensive. That was kind of like part of like the shock people and say the thing you're not supposed to say. But I'm guessing more and more they can't do that. And then the other group is philosophers, because I remember in my philosophy classes, we would talk about some like ridiculous moral scenarios, like wildly implausible things, just like reflect on why do we have the moral norms we do? So you'd have to defend something that's so morally obvious, like why is murder wrong, for example? But, and then enter, well, what if, is it okay? Well, maybe it is. Let's think about, could it be okay? <laughs> um, yeah, what circumstances, yeah. et cetera. And like, yeah. I just wonder if you can do those kinds of, and there are worse things than murder that you could talk about. Murder's pretty bad. <laughs> but the point is there are like a lot of thought experiments that were like really meant to like morally challenge you. And I just wonder if you can do those anymore because we've become so sensitive about even thinking the wrong thing, contemplating it for a moment to understand it better. And I think there's probably a big loss that we can't do that anymore. Yeah, it feels like there is because there's so many, as you said, even in your research about psychologists, there's so much self-censoring and the cost of self-censorship is not small. It's it's not feeling self-expressed, which internalizes the avoidance of chaos outside of oneself internalizes. I would love to see the levels of cortisol and inflammation in people <laughs> who self-censor. Yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah. Because, you know, historically, that's a survival-based thing, and that's been especially true for women. And I think now it's true for a lot of people in We think that it's just we are avoiding conflict, but the avoidance of conflict is the avoidance of transformation. It's the avoidance of depth. It's the avoidance of evolution. There are costs to the individual doing the self-censoring, but then there are also costs to the group. Um, One thing we saw in our study was that people who had more uh, controversial beliefs, and these aren't like, um, these aren't opinions. These are like, this, this, this fact is true. People who felt like facts relevant to psychology, but that are kind of controversial. People who thought those were true, empirically correct statements of the world of human psychology were much more likely to self-censor, which what that means as a consequence is that the perception of scientific consensus surrounding taboo research areas 
is systematically biased toward socially desirable conclusions. So if we were trying to understand what's true about human psychology, let's get the expert opinions of what psychologists believe. Well, that wouldn't be a good measure of what psychologists believe because the ones who have certain beliefs won't talk about it. They won't tell anyone. And so this can distort not only what psychologists believe because they think, well, I'm in the minority. My peers think this is false, but I secretly think it's true. No, a lot of people think it's true. Just no one will talk about it. Then that doesn't get taught to students. It doesn't get shared publicly. It doesn't inform policy. It doesn't get taught you know, in education down the line. There could be huge costs to people self-censoring for the community at large and for human progress in general. But people, I think they're protecting themselves. They don't want to be the one to speak up. Why should I have to be the one to speak up? And they don't think about the fact that there are these potential social costs because they're they're kind of being a little bit cowardly. And I don't think they realize how many other people feel the same way they do and that everyone's being cowardly. And a lot of people believe what you believe. It's just no one wants to say so. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be the sort of mechanism of what becomes tyrannical governments. You know, we cancel oppositional views, we shame oppositional views, and then there are no longer oppositional views. And then there is the misconception of consensus. And then you have this silent majority that are all waiting for someone to get loud enough to point at the thing that we, it's like we need they, social proof. they need proof. to step up in unit. Like that's the problem. Right. Like when you have a couple of brave people who will step forward, it's easy to get rid of those people because there are only a few of them. But if everyone came forward together, well, you can't kill everyone. You can't cancel everyone. You can't fire everyone. Then people would have more protection. But it's, it's a collective action problem. If not everyone will do it together, then any one person who will stand up for truth, stand up for free inquiry, those people are putting themselves at huge risk, even if the majority of people would defend them and believe that what they're doing is the right thing. And so these people get punished. And then it just makes everyone feel even more justified in keeping quiet and not coming forward. And it's such a slippery slope, like just a cyclical thing that needs to break by our own standing in our truth, whatever that might mean for someone and not doing it with virtuosity. How hard is that though? (laughs) You know, and righteousness. Yeah. Because that often is like the energy from rage, from silence comes out as like, you know, this, but you know, if there's one thing I know to be true, it's that the experience of someone's truth is so contagious. It is authenticity itself, you know, shatters algorithms. The internet can't even hold it back. And I, we see that continuously over time. Corey, I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I want to acknowledge you for the work you do and for your willingness to explore, you know, and I I really think, you know, the world needs bridge builders now, like people who are looking at how do we disagree with someone with love and curiosity and observe our desire to want to cancel or, or, or dismiss. And we need that now more than ever. And that's true relationally. That's such an important skill for me to have with my romantic partner as much as it is my mom and dad or my best friend, but also just an acquaintance. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun talking to you and it's nice to be 
appreciated as a the moderate voice and, and not saying anything cool. We're making extreme. the moderates. The moderates are making a comeback. We're going right. to bring them. They're going to be the new extremists. Moderates. Moderates are the new extremists. That's uh, probably going to be the title. If you get that to catch on, then yeah. I will owe a huge debt to you. <laughs> Corey, where can people find more of you? I have a website, uh, which I think is just like CoreyJClark.com. Uh, I'm Perfect. on Twitter. I'm hardcorey which is supposed to be a plan. I'm hardcore, but no one gets it. So I get whatever. it. I got it. <laughs> uh, and then I sometimes blog and podcast, but you can find all that on my website. So Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to link it all out. Thanks again for your time. Very appreciative. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.